Welcome to the Colour 2 podcast. I know. I'm in sunny California. This week we're coming from Hollywood and I'm going to see Mark Wiley and I'm going to talk to him about what he's working on. He's got his own shop here in Hollywood. So I'm very interested to find out more about what Mark is doing. Ready to have some fun? If you look inside, you can see every possible color. This week we're coming from Hollywood, and I'm in a car. It's the first time I just turned the tunes down. Someone just rode past on one of those soppy scooters. They're everywhere. Uh, first time I actually started the pod in the car. I'm actually driving to see a colorist. I've been working in Burbank, and I'm heading across town. So in typical LA fashion, I'm sitting in a bit of a jam. We're just coming up to the Dolby Theatre, well, obviously where they have the Oscars. And um, just about to go there, well, this is where uh, the Chinese Theatre is, right on Hollywood Boulevard. And I'm just going to negotiate. I've just got to pull out, which I'm just going to do now. Uh, got around a guy, that's good. We're, we're still alive. It's good driving on the wrong side of the road. You know you're in a movie town because there's just so many movie posters Netflix posters, every big billboard is for some show that's coming up. So you really feel like you're in a movie town. I mean, we're right in the heart of Hollywood. The film is just across to the left here. We just gone past where Technicolor is. There's lots of post shops around here just because, you know, there is lots of, lots of work in the town. So obviously lots of opportunity. I'm gonna see Mark Wileach. Uh, a lot of people know his name, know of him. Probably very few people have actually met him. I've only met him a couple of times. He is a Hollywood LA colorist, veteran colorist. Incredible presence in forums and he's really helped a lot of people in coloring down the years. And I'm gonna to talk to him about that. I'm gonna to talk to him about what he's working on. He's got his own shop here in Hollywood. So I'm very interested to see what he's doing, he probably described himself more in the indie movie market, I suppose. And we're gonna find out more about what Mark is doing, if I ever get there, that is. So, uh, hope you enjoy the pod. I'll see you when I get up in his room. So, I've entered uh, the building here, and we're in Hollywood, and uh, we're just off uh, Highland and I'm in the lift. This was actually the Technicolor old building. I'm not gonna say the 20s and Mark will probably correct me, I just know he got grated there in the lift. And I'm now walking down the uh, corridor. So there's lots of offices off side by side. So it's old building with offices. And uh, Mark's place must be right down the end here. Here we go. So this could be right, this is here we are, this is Chroma Hollywood. It's pretty dark. Hey. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? Good. Good to see you. Yeah, you have this room running a bit dark, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. We, uh, we love it in the dark. In the middle of Hollywood. Now, this doesn't look like a modern day Hollywood movie as in the, the things that people may have heard of. Is that, would that be fair? Yeah, this is this is something I uh, I've been doing for the last few years. I have a, a very nice client on the East Coast, uh, vinegar syndrome, kind of like vinegar. So the hope for these home video companies like Vinegar Syndrome is they're going to save these movies before they 
just completely fall apart and get them scanned, get them painstakingly restored so that they're scrubbed and bright and clear and crisp and they're color corrected and look beautiful before the film elements that they came from fall apart. Yeah. And that's my job to, you know, maybe give them a bit of a sheen and make them bright and colorful and interesting and uh, hopefully give them a new life on home video and streaming and all these other ancillary markets. So this is a movie, what, from 70s, 80s? This is, this is I want to say, 1985, okay. something like that. This is a Western. We will, we will, be, uh, we will be vague about the title yeah, because sure. I think yeah. it hasn't been announced no, yeah. yet. Yeah. But, for, but for the company, it's, it's kind of a big uh, title for them. And this is one of many movies that has never been released in high def in any form anywhere in the world. And somewhere, some somehow, somebody loves this movie and wants to see it and has been waiting years and years to see it. I'm sure. And maybe they're looking at a VHS tape from the 80s or they're looking at a yeah. DVD from the 90s and now they'll be able to see it in crystal clear Blu-ray, which will be great. Or they'll be able to watch it via streaming on iTunes or Amazon or Netflix. All right. So let's run through the kit. You've got Resolve, I can see that. Yeah. You're sitting here with a set of big panels. Yeah. We, are, we are using the two-monitor Resolve setup uh, with a third monitor dedicated just to scopes. Yeah. We're using Scopebox. Yeah, very nice. I'm a big fan of, of Scopebox, particularly the, um, uh, what, what do they call it? The uh, HML. Yeah. Uh, little little tiny vector scopes where yeah. they give you little mini vector displays of highs, mids, and lows, which is very handy to tell what the whites are doing, the mids are doing, and the blacks are doing. And I much prefer them to the DaVinci scopes. For a lot of reasons, I think having external scopes is a great idea. Yes. Uh, my my uh, observation is, number one, scope box is affordable. It's not that not that expensive. It just requires another Mac running in the background. And um, the second thing I love about it is that the scopes are infinitely sizable and customizable, which is great. You can put them anywhere you want, make them as big or small as you want, have duplicate scopes if you want. I've got one vector scope set to 200% and then a regular vector scope. Nice. It's a 12-core machine, full tilt, 64 gigs, you know, dual D700 GPUs and all that stuff. And that's the, the main... Uh, system that runs Resolve, but we have a Mac Mini just yeah. running scopes. We have another Mac Mini, which is uh, the SQL Server, yeah. which is right over there on that other table, so all the projects are handled over there. And then we have an additional Mac, which is over there on the floor, and we kind of use that as a render machine. So occasionally we will offload things to that system so that we can, you might say, render in the background while I go on and do color correction on this system. Sometimes I'll even use uh, an additional Mac, just my little laptop over there, when I need to slice up uh, film scans or flatten files from the client and just use auto scene to tech and and let that go in the background. And then I'll just bring the scene, uh, scene cut list over here to the big machine and then tweak it if necessary. You so, save you save the scene cut list as an EDL, then pre-confirm. Uh, I actually I'm uh, after years of experimenting with that, I just use the scene cut format, the dot SC. You save that and then And I save that, import that into uh, the big resolve system and then use those 
clips. In fact, as you can see over here, I think every everybody knows this trick. We like tricks on this. We like oh, yeah. tricks on this podcast. Uh, I can't I can't show you with this particular reel, no. but uh, you know the you know the trick where if you have something already cut, yes, and you look in the bin and you've got hundreds and hundreds of of clips, yes. all from the same master clip. Yes and you bring them into your timeline and drop them in and everything is in its place. Yeah. If you delete all those in the media page and then pull the original single clip in, yeah. it will automatically repopulate if you have yes. resolved setup correctly. And then and only then, you can move the position of the split or the join and, yes. and all that stuff and change your edit. Which, that's a big telly up there, your monitor. Yeah, this is an LG C8. Yeah, I, I've got to say I, I've gotten awfully used to the 55. Initially, yeah. I thought it was too big. I come from the days of the let's see in the 80s, maybe we had a 20-inch monitor. Yeah, we eventually started getting 25-inch CRT yeah. displays. At some point in the 90s, we got the Sony BVM 32s. Big thing. That was the biggest. Big giant 300-pound CRTs that took four guys to move. It's surprising the number of projects that were done on relatively small monitors. Yeah. For example, I worked for about three months at Industrial Light and Magic up in Northern California, and we did all of Star Wars and all of Return of the Jedi on a 20-inch Sony BVM, wow. which had been very carefully calibrated to their standards. And it was done in such a way that it would actually translate for D-Cinema. They're your remasters, yeah. So yeah, so it, it actually worked very well. But this this particular monitor, the LG C8, uh, we had it calibrated very carefully by Dave Abrams, who has kind of a proprietary system where he uses different components of both Light Illusion and CalMan. Wow and he kind of uses them separately and gets the best out of both. And so he has figured out a way to actually get good, consistent results out of OLED, and we've been very happy with it. So you, you would have looked at the traditional Sony PVM, the Flanders OLEDs and those sort of displays. So how come you decided to, why was, what swayed you to go on this, which is... Gosh, this is this is great for a couple of thousand dollars. <laughs> if I if I had a significantly more money to get, it would certainly be a consideration. Uh, I actually looked at the twenty thousand dollar Sony, yeah. their fifty five inch model, yeah. and I had been warned by uh, a couple of people that the off axis viewing yes. was kind of a problem. And I, I saw it at, I think, a Cinegear Expo here in L.A. a couple of years ago. And they had the Sony uh, BVM X300, and they had this Sony BVM 55-inch display there. It might be a PVM. I'm, I'm yeah. not sure if they call it a BVM. Yeah. And I, I could see you take two steps to the left, and it starts going green and dim and strange and all that stuff. And, and I said, the oh, problem no. is they're just not big enough. Yeah. You know, nowadays, like you were saying... You know, we people used to walk in my room and go, wow, that's a big telly. Mm -hmm. Now people are walking in my room going, well, that's a small telly. You or know, they'll say, is that, is that it? Yeah, is that <laughs> it? So the, the other thing, it's all about size, sort of comes in here. But what I will stress to people, anyone listening, if you're thinking of going this route, and I went through the same of this with the guys at Auto Eagle, you've got Auto Eagle, you've got to get someone who's going to calibrate these and knows these monitors and can do it because there is little things in there that you've got to watch out for. 
and it's not a case of going down to the you know best buy or fries and pulling it out of the box yeah that, that's very that true and i i have to say we are lucky to to live in a city like la where we we benefit by having our choice of i think four or five different people who are in the calibration business and if we run into an emergency i can pick up the phone and probably get a guy over here, I'd say within six, seven hours, and he'll check on it and say, oh, yeah, there's definitely a problem, or, oh, no, everything is fine, you know, you're good. Yeah. One thing about being in the color business, we are paranoid about our monitors. And yeah. uh, I was at a facility today, which I <laughs> shall not mention. Oh, why not? And, uh, oh, I should, <laughs> I should not mention. And um, I w worked on a test for them, and I kept looking at the image and looking at the scopes, and I, and I just felt, I had the suspicion, I don't like what I see. There's something going on. I went to the top of the, the file, and all there was was a slate, but it was a slate at 100 units. And I said, hmm, this, this should feel brighter than this. These are absolutely maximum white. What's going on here? Yeah. I finally dropped some bars on the timeline. I'm I'm old school that way. Yeah. I know that I know that um, color bars and things like that kind of don't make any sense in some ways in a digital world, but I find them very reassuring. Yeah. And so I I put a few seconds of bars and a few seconds of grayscale ramp yeah. at the beginning of all my files. Not really, not so much to see uh, if it's right, but to see if we've screwed up in some way. Mm. So if it's like, oh, we've got a, a you know, a, a video or full problem where something yeah. is getting changed as it's going into Premiere or Final yeah. Cut Pro X or something like that. Something fell apart on the way out. We had yeah. the export settings in the wrong place. And it only takes one second to check. But today when I was at this facility, yeah. I looked at color bars and I said, oh, no, that, that is not right. So back about Chroma, you just mentioned sure. Henry and Chroma. Yeah. And how did that get around? So... How long has Chroma been, and how did you get to to starting your I'm, own shop? I'm told we just hit our one our, our one year anniversary today. And Henry and I uh, had worked together at Technicolor almost ten years on and off. We've worked we've each worked for a half a dozen different other post houses around LA for many many years. And for the last uh, seven or eight years, we had been freelance colorists. You know, working at different places, we'd four wall a room or we'd uh, work freelance at another facility, big and small. You know, we'd be in massive rooms, theaters, you know, and so on, on, on fairly, you know, reasonable size movies to, to sometimes little tiny reality shows or cable programs or small documentaries, things like that. So it was a potpourri. And the occasional commercial or trailer or music video, things like that. And sort of by happenstance, Henry and I, uh, worked on a feature together, a feature I started and then because of scheduling could not finish. Henry was able to finish it for me, which was great, so it was advantageous to both of us. He did a wonderful job. Uh, as luck would have it, the, the client came back two or three more times as the film continued to change sure. during the distribution process. And by the end of it, uh, Henry and I had formed Chroma, last year and he we actually finished the movie for real last year wow. and and that was a, a kind of the culmination of 
I don't know, three or four complete color passes, and we finally got the thing done once you know, and for all. So you got it pretty good because you've got one bay, you've got two colorists, you've, you've got some contracts, which is some good bread and butter, you're fitting other jobs in between, and the room must be billing pretty good hours. Yeah, we're, we do pretty well. I would say uh, we're probably keeping busy at least 70 or 80 hours a week. So it's not that's, bad. I mean, we, we could always be bigger. Yeah, that's nice. And we, we are talking to uh, a couple of other colorists in L.A. Okay. Doing the same sort of thing, pooling our skills, our talents, and our abilities, and most importantly, yeah. the equipment. Yeah. And talking about expansion and possibly adding a second room and maybe... Uh, a third room for conforming and, you know, kind of an assist well, and render station. Well, you know. You, you and Henry can go back there. <laughs> I heard they had space available. Oh, I, sh I shouldn't say that. I, 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 still have, I still have friends at Technicolor, and it's a wonderful yeah. place, oh, yeah. and they do great work. Yeah, Man, I see. They're all the, very good people there. All the places in town, I think the difference is now people do have choices because... It doesn't matter that you're working in a in a room which is suites and it's not what you would typically class as your post house, but because you and Henry have got the relationships, you've got the gear, you've got the clients, if you're happy doing it and pulling out the work, and I find that clients are happy to do the same. And that's what's sort of changed. What's what's interesting to me, just kind of stepping back and observing the way things are and the way things used to be. It's funny, I, I see a lot of people complaining about, oh, it's so expensive to get into the color correction business. Resolve is $299. Where am I gonna come up with that money? Yeah. I need to buy a bigger drive. That's gonna be $1,000. Yeah. You know, oh my God, yeah. and how am I gonna do all this? And I tell them, you realize that uh, the kind of room we have here at Chroma would have been at least two or three million dollars for kind of an entry level yep. experience when you look at distribution amps and audio and mm. speakers and the monitors and the scopes. The scopes alone, especially for high def, would have cost you $40,000 yeah. back in those days. The post-production business can be very ugly and you know there are the, the ground, the streets of LA are littered with the bodies of of people who tried and failed to keep up with color. I'll tell you a quick, quick story. This is an uncharted story about about uh, Da Vinci yeah. and, and Da Vinci Resolve, which you may or may not know. Yeah, I've heard of it. I um, uh, I actually worked for Da Vinci briefly. I worked for them for maybe four or five months yeah. as a consultant. Yeah. And Da Vinci Systems in Florida was in an interesting period of change in the early 2000s. They were looking ahead at the future and they said, damn, this 2K thing is taking off and, we're, and you know, we've stopped making the old Da Vinci color correction system. We have to decide, are we going to come out with Da Vinci 4K or should we go with a resolution independent system like Resolve mm. using off-shelf hardware? And there was a lot of internal dissent in the company, which way should we go? And I remember there being kind of a tug of war. Half the company wanted to come out with a DaVinci 4K that would be all hardware, so you'd have a big rack full of boards and power supplies and yep. computers and wires and stuff. And it would basically be like the old 2K, only it's four times as much resolution. And the other half said, oh, no, 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 we have to look at the future 
in a world that might go beyond 4K, we need resolution, resolution independence. Try to say that three times yeah. real fast. And uh, so there was a little bit of a fight, and they kind of went back and forth, on it, and obviously Resolve won. But Resolve was a very, very expensive system in the beginning. And I remember using, uh, or I tried, an early prototype. I guess it was a release version. I think it was called R300. Yes. So we're talking about Resolve in 2004, 2005, something yeah, like yeah. that. And my God, it was horrible. You know, you'd turn a knob, and then about three seconds later, you'd see something happening on the yeah, screen. Yeah, 300, 300 grand. And it was very, very expensive. In fact, I think if you got a full tilt system with every possible option, it was more like half a million dollars. It would have been, so it was yeah. ridiculously it expensive. Was, it was. So let me ask you this. Uh, you know, you hear coloring your movies, but uh, real thanks from a lot of people, the amount of input you put into forums, different forums and helping people across a lot of forums. How do you get the time and the enthusiasm to do that? And you must be fast typer. What's the uh, story? That, that is kind of the short <laughs> truth. Yeah. Uh, I In another life, yeah. I was a writer for 12 or 13 newsstand magazines. Right. And I did that as a hobby in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah. And I, so I sort of had a second career in addition to being a colorist in Hollywood. I also wrote for these newsstand magazines. I yes. wrote about technology. I wrote about computers and new monitors and surround systems and home video cameras, things like that. And I learned to write fast. I learned to meet a deadline and write professionally and get to the point. Mm. And all these things are very important. Plus, I understood the technology and I could explain it in a way that people could understand, regular yes. people reading yeah. a magazine. So uh, I read 2,000 words a minute. I can, I can write at almost 60 or 70 words a minute. So I can type very quickly. Yeah. So you know, when, I, when I'm working on movies late at night, if I decide I need a break, I, I'll yes. say, oh, I'll go on Lift Gamma Gain or yeah. I'll go on the Black Magic Forum for 15 minutes and see what's going on. Um, and I know I have I have a couple of close friends who you know, <laughs> who have told me, Mark, you've got to shut the hell up. You a you're giving away too many secrets. <laughs> B nobody cares about your bullshit opinions. And C you're actually helping our competition, because these <laughs> up and coming kids who are yeah. 22, 23 years yeah. old, you know, right out of college, they're going to be doing. Uh, resolve color correction for $50 an hour on Craigslist yeah. and getting stealing, stealing work from us. And I go, you know, one thing you have to remember, for every message you see from me online, there's probably nine or 10 cases where I read a message and I thought, I could answer this. And I go, no, I don't even want to get into it with this idiot. None. Because they, either they're hopeless yeah. or the answer is simply RTFM, read the frigging manual. Yeah. yeah. Or it's it's just common sense. You've got to figure it out yourself. Yeah. Uh, I've I, I've had conversations with the black magic people and they, they know who they are. I won't mention them, but where I swear eighty percent of the questions on the forums are either read the manual or uh, do a search. This has already been discussed on the forum before. Yes. 
or this is such a basic question, you kind of should already know this. Maybe watch a tutorial by like Warren Eagle's fine FX PhD yeah, I've heard uh, of tutorials. Um, and, or, you know, I mean, there's free stuff on, on YouTube, although you have oh, to yeah. be very careful with those. But I mean, there's a basic level of understanding you have to know. And um, so that's really where a lot of that is. Where I try to jump in are the 20% of the questions that are not answered in the manual and are not obvious and yeah. are not covered in tutorials. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody will talk about something that's a malfunction or just uh, it's a design issue. I'm hesitant to call it a flaw, yeah. but it's a, a deliberate decision that Blackmagic made. Yeah. And, and I tell them, my, my way of answering the question is usually this. I'll say, you're right, it does do that. And here's a workaround. If you don't like the way this is, try this other method and see if that works for you. Yeah. But yeah, it is the way it is, get used to it. I agree. It's frustrating for me when I see people jump online and they go, I used to use Brand X color corrector, or I used to use this you know, Model A editing system. Yeah. Why isn't Resolve more like that? Yeah. And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, that's like, why isn't a Tesla more like a Ford? Or why isn't a Ferrari more like my truck? I mean, it's, it's kind of a, you know, to mix my metaphors, it's kind of an apples and orange thing. Yeah. And sometimes I resist saying it, and otherwise, uh, other times I just come out and say it. Get used to it. It's not going to change. It is the way it is. Wrap your head around it and go. Classic, classic story. It was on yeah, the, face, I, no, the Facebook forum. Oh, well, Somebody the, asked a question. Oh, yeah. And the guy called Mark answered, and the guy came back. I was rather hoping the other Mark would comment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I, I, missed, I missed that answer. You must have not been on that day. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, I, can't, I can't read everything. I do read very quickly, but, but I don't read everything. But, but it is true. And, I, and I've told people more than once when they, when they just hammer on something that uh, is a specific design philosophy that Peter Chamberlain and Rohit and the other people back at Black Magic intended. And they, and they basically said, this is the way Resolve is, yes. and we're not going to change, and the, you know, yeah. you've got to kind of figure out a way to make this work for you. And a, a good example, there was a huge screaming thread on the Black Magic forum yeah. where some premier editors came on and they said, you know, I would love to use uh, DaVinci Resolve as my primary editing platform, but I want to be able to just grab the view menu and park it on another monitor. And of course the answer is, well, you have to buy a Blackmagic card or an outward box and you run the monitor out from that and that becomes your hero display. And so now your main yeah. GUI monitor is just for GUI. And they would respond, well, I know that already, but I don't want to do that. And so my answer to them is, listen, a lot of the way Resolve works to me is kind of a Zen thing. You have to just absorb it and kind of let it wash over you. You know, in other words, stop fighting it yeah. and just accept uh, it and yeah. then find a way to tweak it 
the way you like it. That's you know, come up with a different workspace, move some windows around a little bit, course. and you will get work done and you will uh, bill, you'll make a living, it. and that's, everybody will uh, be happy. People get too romantic and still wound up on it. At the end of the day, we are trying to work, pay our mortgages, you know, feed our kids and do things. And, that's, you know, that's exactly it. And, and, and they get so tied up in, you know, these design issues of Black Magic. And I mean, let's yeah. face it, Black Magic. Is a is a company uh, started by Grant Petty, you know, out of his apartment mm. to build video cards, yes. and eventually he had amassed enough uh, money and and you know had the right timing to buy DaVinci Systems, and since he was in the video card business, he said, "Hey, this will be great. Resolve will actually support my video cards." So of course you have to buy one to kind of do yeah. the other. But I but I go look. Look at it this way. Uh, how many years has it been? Two or three years? They dropped the price from nine ninety five to two ninety nine. Well, gosh, that certainly pays for a very fine card right there. So I mean, you've already saved two thirds of the original cost of yeah. Resolve, and I think it was a bargain at nine ninety five. Yeah. I think I bought three or four licenses just at that price, and I don't regret it. They've no. they paid for themselves within a few weeks. Yeah. So when you're grading, what's your like ideal day in terms of you said it's quite a big monitor you're sitting here there's there's your our eyes are focusing we're looking at scopes it's a big concentration job what's not of your sweet spot in terms of hours if you're on a normal job i come from the the complete post school where we would just work until we drop yeah. Um, so people like me and Sparkle and yes. uh, Henry Santos, a lot of us who were at Complete Post and Technicolor for many years, we just became total workaholics, absolutely addicted to the job, but, to the point where we would just grind through 12, 13, 14 hours a day. Now, is that ideal? No. And it's also not very healthy. That was because you got good overtime, wasn't it? Well, that, that has a lot to do with it. <laughs> And uh, yeah, but but you know, I, I came to realize after a while, you know, I asked Sparkle that one time. Sparkle, you know, all, all the best colorists in LA only have one name, yes. like Stefan yes. only has one name. And Sparkle, Steve Arkel over yes. at uh, Technicolor, uh, I, I remember asking him, we had a particularly grueling week where we had each worked over 100 hours. Yeah. And you know that's that's a lot of time. You know that's uh, more than twelve hours a day, seven days in a row. And yeah. you know it starts adding up when you're not getting enough sleep and you've got to drive mm. home and all of that stuff. And I I saw a Sparkle where he was near nearly you know falling over from exhaustion. And I said, Hey, listen, dude. You know you make very good money. You know your clients love you. You got a wonderful resume and everything. Why put yourself through all this? You know, why work this hard? Why do all this incredible work in post-production? Why put, your, put yourself through this? And he kind of sighed and he looked at me and he said, this is what I do. And uh, that stuck with me. Mm. Kind of us don't have families or we have the kind of relationship where uh, it's not a big deal if you spend seven days a week or six days a week, yeah. 10 hours a day yeah. at it. It would be different, you know, if you have small children in your mm. life or an extended family or yeah. something like that. So it's not for everyone. No. I meet younger people. Yeah. I have had assistants who wanted to learn how to be colorists. I've had people who I recommended for jobs at other companies. 
and they've gone over there. These are people in their 20s or early 30s. And then I find out, oh God, they expect me to work 10, 12 hours a day. I don't do that. I work nine to five, nine to six. I want to go home. I want to, I want to enjoy my life and have a nice meal with my wife and a glass of wine and watch some TV and then get some sleep. And yeah. I go, oh God, no, we, we don't do that. <laughs> You know, I'm eating on the job, and I'm running around, and I'm <laughs> yeah, on the phone. I'm, I'm doing emails with my next client and all of that stuff. So, I mean, we are driven, ambitious workaholics in this side of it. Everyone's different. You know, everyone yeah. works and gets the jobs done differently, different ways, and that makes it, makes it interesting, doesn't it? But, but at the same time, uh, I like to think I know when to back off. So I, I, I just had a period, I think, uh, I think I worked two months, two and a half months straight without a day off. Yeah. And I finally got a break. And uh, I felt like I was coming off a race car track, you know, Grand Prix at 180 miles an hour. And I was finally going at a normal speed again, 20 miles an hour. And it was great to catch my breath and relax. Yeah. And I took two or three days off. I watched some shows on Netflix. You know, I hung out with my family, had some nice meals, nice. you know, like a barbecue, socialized a little yeah. bit. And it was nice to, you know, have kind of a normal life and remember what being human is. So you had a day off and you sat in front of another LG OLED. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Love a C8. Yeah, there you go. Well, in fact, in fact, we're look, looking at the C9. Don't look at that. I mean, there's always there's always something new out there. It's it's interesting this whole monitor thing. Yeah. What do you think? And uh, you know, I, I see a lot of people out there. It's it's very sad sometimes. I see people, uh, especially people from third world countries. Yeah. Who are struggling, and I'm I'm very sympathetic to them. I know that life is hard in, in some places yeah. around the world. And you see people who say, you know, I've saved up for five years and I have $2,000. Yeah. What can I get for a computer and a monitor and storage and, you know, some other things in order to run Resolve? And I go, listen, man, $2,000 won't, won't even be enough for dailies. The truth of the matter is it's a very, it's a relatively inexpensive program that has a high cost of entry. And I constantly tell people online, you've got to read Blackmagic's configuration specs. Yeah. Those are not done as a joke and they're not bragging and uh, it's not to be taken lightly. When they say you need a certain level of processors and RAM and speed and disk IO and GPUs and all that stuff, they are not kidding. So I feel very sad when I, when I see people saying, I'm trying to do this 4K project and I've got this seven-year-old computer and gee, Resolve is running very slowly. <laughs> and I go, yeah. Yes, it, it is, in fact, running running very slowly. And uh, and I said, the truth is, it's hard to do that with a 2019 machine. Yeah. I asked this question, I try if I remember, um, to the colorist on the color tour. Uh, your highlight moment in your career where you thought that was good and you did a big job and went well or whatever, and the low light, was there like a fail where something just didn't work and whatever happened was going wrong? And I've had a, a few highlights. Yeah. I've gotten to work with some very interesting clients. I've done a couple of movies with Bob Richardson. Mm. I did Shine a Light, which was the Rolling Stone uh, concert documentary. That came out very, very well. 
I often say, even though we just did that in 2K, it went all the way to IMAX yeah. and it looked beautiful. Nobody, nobody knew that there yeah. was any, you know, uh, high def processing going on. I mean, it looked like a million bucks. Yeah. Um, and uh, I did a couple of movies from Michael Mann. Michael Mann is very demanding, but again, as far as I'm concerned, while he can be very opinionated and have very strong, strong ideas about where he wants to go, the great thing about a filmmaker like that is he knows what he wants. And if you're screwing around and going, well, let's try this, we'll try that, and he'll say, no, no, that's not it, that's not it. Boom, when the right picture comes up, he goes, yes, that's exactly what I want. Make this entire scene like, look yeah. just like this, yeah. and move, let's move on to the next scene. Yeah, let's get matched. Boom, and that's it. So yeah. he's very decisive. And I appreciate that. I, yeah, I, I, like, so I. I like filmmakers like that. The only kinds of filmmakers that frustrate me are the people who are indecisive, who just can't make up their minds. It's sort of like when you're in a, you're in a commercial session and you've got six people looking at a box of detergent. Yeah. And you, know, you try a couple of looks and you go, what do you think? And they go, oh, I don't know. Uh, what do you think? Can you do anything? I don't know. And the, and you know, maybe you've got six people in the room, five of them go, okay, that's it, that's beautiful. And then the guy in the back says, you know, I think it's a little pink. And everyone stops cold. And they go, yeah, maybe it is a little pink. And I've, I've got my head in my hands because we've been, we've been working for three or four hours. We finally settled on a look and now they start thinking it's too pink. So that's that's always you know a frustrating moment, but that's the nature of commercials. Sure. My boss, my old boss, used to tell me, "Mark, we're charging by the hour, so you just have to kind of suck it up, yeah, and smile and say, okay, let's see what we can do. Exactly. Let's yeah. let's go yeah. ahead and change this, you know. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of you know all you can do, just smile and keep going. Yeah. I agree. It's harder uh, for boutique companies like yes. Chroma, where you know it's difficult to put the brakes on a session and go tell the client, "I'm really sorry, but you're out of time and money," and we have to kind of move it along. And you know, you've already committed to this kind of look, and now you're sort of changing your mind, and that's that's kind of a problem yeah. because we're going to have to reassess our budget. You, you asked about good and bad stories. Yes. I'll, I'll tell you a bad one. Yeah, yeah. And this, this happened relatively recently. And as hardened and cynical and, uh, I don't know, uh, experienced as yeah. I am, this one caught me by surprise because this was a case where I thought everything was going well, but it was not. Mm. I had done a horror short for a pretty decent director, um, and I, I won't go into too many details about who yeah. he is or what he is, yeah. but, but let's say he's kind of new to filmmaking, but he knows what he's doing, especially with lighting. And we did a short together, and he was very happy with the short. I think it came out very well. We did it completely by remote. So I would send him uh, previews over Framio yeah. or one of the various uh, services, and he would look at it and send me back notes, and I would make changes, we'd go back and forth, and eventually we came up with something that was reasonable, and he was very happy with the results. And I liked the guy, and it was very high-quality work to me. Yes. And it won a number of little awards and things. Yeah. He came back a year or two later and wanted to do a longer film. 
This time it was about 20, 25 minutes. And I said, well, you'll be happy to know that this time, instead of working by remote, I'm going to actually have you in our new office here at Chroma Hollywood. And we've got a nice, comfortable room yeah. and comfy chairs and give you some drinks and, you know, get coffee. We'll send out for food. It'll be a party. It'll be great. We'll just kick back, relax, and go through your short. And I said, the beauty of this is we'll both see the exact same picture at the same time. Yeah. So there will be no doubt that what you see is what you get. Yeah. So no communication problem. Uh, an old friend of mine used to have a sign on his color correction desk, which said, just tell us what you want and we will do it. And that's kind of <laughs> my philosophy too. I mean, if yeah. they're right here in the room, hey, there's yeah. no problem. They go, hey, can you add a yeah. little blue? Not a problem. Here we go. How's that yeah. look? All right. So we started going through the film mm. and the guy was someone inexperienced. I, I won't insult him because he's a fine writer and a pretty good director. He yeah. knows story and yes. direction, you know, and all that. And, uh, and I said, so here's how we work. You know, we, we pick what I call a hero shot. So let's, let's say we have two characters on a couch mm. and we'll grab a wide shot. Yeah. And now we'll match the medium shots and the close-ups and the reverses and the over-the-shoulders to that wide shot. And we'll make sure all the shots flow together. But we use that as a reference. And he goes, I got it. Yeah, no problem. So I go, let's set a look. So we set a look for the scene. And we tried a few different things. Yeah. He, and finally, we, found, we came up with a, a good compromise that he liked. And I said, great. And... I started going through the scene, and by by about shot number 13 or 14, where I'm meticulously matching them, he said, you know, I'm not so sure about that wide shot. And I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. We set that as our look. Yeah. And he said, well, I don't care. I, I don't like it. Creatively, it's got to be right. And I said, okay, just be aware. You know, once you commit, you've got to stick with it. You can't change your mind. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So we started going through it again, and I said, remember, this is a house of cards. If I change the wide shot, well, now I change the close-ups, the medium yes. shots, the two shots over the shoulder and reverses, and it's not always a linear change. Sometimes it's a little red here, and mm. it's a little darker here, and it's a little brighter there. It's not automatic, so bear that in mind. And he goes, okay, okay. And he saw what I was doing, realized, you know, I'm trying to help. We're going to make it match. We're going to make it work. The other difficulty we had was he had edited for three months with a certain kind of camera, and I will not say the camera either, because that might be a clue. And uh, he had uh, taken ProRes copies of the RAW and got used to the log look. Yes. And he did not know that you are supposed to apply a LUT like the factory LUT, the camera LUT, yes. to go to Rec. 7 and 9 so that you see a normal picture. So he got used to this very sort of yellow, orange, kind of uh, lifted, desat well, yeah, kind of desaturated, smoky kind of look. As a temporary grade, I gave him what I thought was a normal look. Speaking as a guy who's done 150 horror movies, I know what a horror movie is supposed to look mm. like. I did The Hills Have Eyes. I did Friday the 13th. Yeah. I did uh, Last House on the Left. I mean, I, I did a lot of famous 80s horror movies, and yeah. I've done a lot of them in recent years, too. So, I mean, I know scary, dark, 
you know, extreme, you know, dramatic, yeah. you know, all that stuff. I I get it. I understand. We we don't want a normal look. We want a creepy look that's kind of affecting and you know gets on your nerves. So, but he wanted this very lifted, thin, uncontrasty look, and I'm like, hey man, that's that's not traditional horror. And I mean, it's okay if you want to do that. That's your creative choice. We're here to serve. Yes. But it's technically kind of weird. And you may get some pushback on this. And he goes, I don't care. That's what I want. And I said, you know, I thought, well, you have to pick your battles. <laughs> you know, so I thought, okay, we will do what you want. So I, I think we came up with a compromise. Yeah. Not quite as lifted as what he had seen in his dailies, which was like blacks at 40 units. Wow. It was sort of like blacks at 15 units or yeah. something. So it was darker, but not great. And I, I think it was an acceptable compromise. Occasionally tempers flared in the session. Uh, I don't believe in shouting or having a confrontation with clients. In all my years, I've only walked out of a session once. Mm. I'll tell that story real quick, yeah. just as a sideline. I did a lot of uh, movies. I did 13, 14 films for the crazy American director, Russ Meyer. Yes. Famous yeah. guy who did uh, very sexy, edgy, super violent R-rated films in yeah. the 80s. And I can, I can say this because Russ is dead and he won't kill me. And uh, I actually think Russ was a very amusing, interesting guy. He was a real auteur director. And I know that may mm. sound like a strange thing to say about a guy who did, you know, kind of TNA movies, sort yeah. of. But he lit the scenes himself. He operated the camera himself. He had a hand in most of the scripts. He directed everything. He produced them all, and he owned the films. Outright. I don't think you can be more of an auteur than that. And all the movies had the same style. Russ was very interesting. He never moved the camera. He wasn't a very good camera operator by his own admission. So he would just lock the camera down, rehearse the actors, and they would do the scene in front of the camera. All of the movement was done through editing. No shot lasted longer than two seconds. So Russ Meyer's movies move like a freight train. Yeah. I started working with Russ because I did uh, one of his most infamous movies, a fairly big budget film, um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Mm. That's a famous one, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very famous film. And I also did Valley of the Dolls by an amazing coincidence. And uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was a very different film. It was, it was an extreme satire, comedy, bizarre, crazy freak out kind of a film. And I did it for Fox. Russ happened to see it and said, this is the way Russ talking, oh, that looks great. Whoever that colorist is, I want him to do all my films. And he tracked me down a few months later, figured out where I worked and goes, well, why don't you work with me? I've got, got some more films I want to do. I want to release these to home video and th this is my legacy. You know, he would always talk about his legacy. And he came in and Russ was absolutely crazy. Uh, he would just change his mind every hour on the hour. Uh, we would review what we had done the day before, and he would decide it was terrible, and we would redo it, and it just went on and on and on for weeks. This was a modern video film. And I would go to the boss, the owner of Modern back in those days, Moshe Barkat, and i go, Moshe, this guy's killing me. 
and he would say, Mark, every, mm -hmm. everything is fine. You, you have to do it. We're getting paid by the hour. And that's a perfect impression <laughs> of Moshe, by the way. And, uh, but one day, I sat down with Russ. It was about the second film we did. And he said, uh, let, me, let me see what we did yesterday. I want to just review. So we put up a tape and we played it. And he goes, Some, something is wrong. This is, this is not what we did yesterday. I remember what we did and that, that is not right. And I said, well, Russ, I happen to have stills from yesterday. Let's compare the tape to the stills. And I showed him back and forth and I said, you'll notice that they're identical. Scopes don't change, picture doesn't change. They're the same. And he said, well, I agree that they don't change, but I don't like it. And I, I think something's wrong. Something is different. And I said, that's it. I've had enough. And I, I said, I can't take this anymore. And I stormed out. And I yelled in Moshe's office on my way out and said, that's it. I quit. I can't take this man anymore. He's insane. And, I, and Moshe, to his credit, caught up with me by the stairs and grabbed me by the collar and dragged me back down the hall. And Russ Meyer and I screamed at each other for an hour about how each thought the other was incompetent and didn't know what they were doing and on and on and on. <laughs> and uh, finally, at the end of it, Moshe said, you know what? I'm going to stop doing my Moshe impression. I'll just yes, speak was... like me. Moshe said, you know what? You guys have to find a way to work together. We all want the same thing, which is for your movie to look beautiful and to make money. And you, Mark, you're here to serve the director and do your job. And you, Russ, you have to trust Mark on technical decisions. He's going to tell you the truth. And he's a very talented colorist. And you have to listen to him. All right? Can you guys work together? Yeah, well, I guess so. And you know what? After that session, we became good buddies. You know, Hollywood friends, kind of. And I wound up doing another... 12, 13 films for him. <laughs> and every session was like every other session where it took, I don't know, God, 10 days, 11 days of excruciating nitpicky work to do relatively simple, you know, but very cutty, you know, violent slasher, you know, nudie yes. kind of sex movies. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always say about Russ, his movies were not about sex. They were about sex and violence. They were 50% of each. So mm. that's one interesting thing about what he did. But, uh, but uh, what, I, what I realized about some clients is they want to see how far they can push you before you break. Yeah. And that was a rare case where I did break. Yeah. And I actually became unglued. Mm. With most clients, I'll just bite my tongue and I'll say, okay, let me think about this and we'll find a solution. Yeah. You know, just some right. non-committal kind of thing. And of course, you can see the blood coming from one hand while I dig my fingernails into my palm, you know, <laughs> and I'm kind of gritting my teeth and all that stuff. But, but I mean, you know, the client is the boss. We're here to... Uh, yeah. You know, we all work for the director, yeah. and that's kind of the way it is. Yeah. So getting back to my disastrous session. Yeah. So we had a guy who, who became used to the log look yes. for three months. And uh, he was insecure and indecisive about how he wanted the show to look. But we finally got through this 20, 25-minute short. And uh, because I tried to be a nice guy... He had paid for eight hours. We went about 10 hours. Yeah. At the end of the session, he said, can we watch it all the way through? And I looked at my watch and I said, wow, you know, I've already given you a couple of hours. 
My fear is if we sit down and watch it again, um, I think it's just going to turn this into a 12 or 13 hour session. Let's live with what we've got, because mm. I know you've got a limited budget. I had given the guy a deal. And I said, look, I will render this out. I'll give you a copy on Framio. And you'll be able to look at the file. If you just need to make a few changes, you know, a few meaning yeah. five or six or maybe even seven or eight little, little changes, I'll do that for free. But any more than that, we'll have to talk about, you know, new schedule, new budget, okay? And he said, great. And he said, I'm, I'm thrilled with what we, what we have. It looks great. All is well. And I said, fantastic. And I said, then I'll spend tomorrow rendering and you can pick up the drive. Came by the next day, all smiles. And he goes, hey, I know things got a little heated yesterday. And I said, it's okay. I said, we're all here for the same thing. We want you to be happy. Thank you so much. You know, gave me a check, took his drive away. And he got home and I had, I had given him the standard speech with all, which all colorists do, which is, we know that it looks good. Your project looks good in this room. Yes. This is a calibrated monitor. Everything is fine. I guarantee you this is right. But it's going to look different when you look at it on your iPad, your iPhone, your laptop, your computer screen, your home monitor, and it'll look different still in a theater. But this is the common denominator. I guarantee you this is good for Rec. 709. And he listened to that speech and said, yes, I understand. I know it's going to change a little bit. Yeah. And I go, yeah, we hope it won't change too much, but mm. just know that it will change. 24 hours later, I got this incredibly angry email from the guy saying, I hate the way it looks. Everything is wrong. You're a terrible colorist. I'm going to take this to someone else, completely redo all the work from scratch. And uh, I'm sorry I ever, I, I ever met you. And this was a horrible experience. Ooh. And, you know, I'm kind of summarizing a longer yeah. email. But I, I was kind of shocked because I went, wow, he was fine in the room. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had a, a few mm -hmm. tense moments. But again, it was this log look versus yeah. what should it really look like. And I, I sent him a very measured email. And I said, I'm very sorry to hear that you're unhappy. And I said, give me a call if you'd like to talk it over. And I said, I, I did explain to you about the, the need yeah. for calibration. And I said, this is not the first time we've had situations where clients get to their office and they see something different than they saw in the color room. And I said, if you like the name of a good calibration guy, I know a few people who are quite affordable and they'll at least adjust your monitor so it's in the ballpark of what we saw in here. And I think if you do that, you'll be happy with the results. Silence. Nothing. So that was a case where, uh, you know, that was kind of one of these live and learn things. And it was a problem where, unfortunately, the client's lack of experience and insecurity played against us in the whole session. I did everything right. I've re-examined yeah, so. re the, the session from, you know, three different angles thinking, is there anything I could well, have done? It, to make it go better. Uh, he probably just looked at it and went, crikey, that's, uh, or somebody else looked at it and said, that's not a horror well, film. Yeah, and then he backtracked out of this <laughs> loggy look and thought, crikey, what was the thinking? And then, yeah. Well, that's, I, I've heard that from, from other people as well. Be, they yeah. said, you know, it's possible a third party yeah. came in and said, oh God, this, yes. this looks so oh, ordinary. I'd, I'd or, you know, it's yeah. it's lost its edge. It, it's not it wouldn't have been anymore. that different on. It's, it will be different as we know, but it wouldn't have been that different. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I was really, you know, kind of, kind of hurt by it because oh, I, yeah, I sort of, yeah. sort of, you know, what is you kind of get into yeah. a professional friendship, of course. Yeah, of course. with these people. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. So should we get some food? See oh, some, great idea! Should we see some Hollywood sights? I, I think that's a great idea. We'll, uh, I'll take you down Melrose to the famous Canners, right. the, one of the best delicatessens in all of LA. I'm looking forward to it. All right. The International Colors Academy specializes in classroom training around the world. The classroom is the ultimate way to learn. So whether you want to become Resolve certified or learn the subtleties of HDR grading, the ICA has a class for all levels, beginner to master class. You can find us at iColorist.com. Yeah, HDR is a very interesting world. And you know, we get, I'm, I'm sure you've seen them, people on the internet who go, oh, this is great, I can, I can go to Target or Costco or Best Buy. Do they have Best Buy down under? Yeah, we do. I'll go to Best Buy and buy a $2,000 HDR set and I'll be in the HDR business. And we're like, no, no, <laughs> no. I go, look at, look at the Netflix specs and see what they uh, require. So, so do you think you can bill more for the HDR component or does it just mean it's another deliverable, which means you get another couple of weeks work, which I, is going to add to the, the, the bottom I think line. it's a combination. I think you can bill more. The problem is the complexity makes the uh, potential for failure even greater. You know, you find out, like uh, you say, wow, the HDR version is beautiful and it looks great. Everybody approves it. And then they call you back and they say, well, the metadata is bad. Yeah. And so you've got to run it again and, you know, flip all the switches and turn all the knobs and make sure that, you know, that's good as well, the, the sidecar information. Yes. So there is that. I, I, I noticed that uh, our mutual friends at Mixing Light uh, did that thing for Dolby. Dolby. Yeah. Vision. I, I hate to I hate to mention your competitors. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they they did a whole Dolby Vision series. Robbie Carmen and and Joey Deanna and, and and those guys. Yeah. And it's terrific. I thought, wow, we we really needed this. You know, this this really shows you the nitty gritty of how to get in and tweak the CMU and all that stuff and do Dolby Vision right. And, and that's a pause while we maneuver traffic. <laughs> By the way, I found out today about James Corden. James Corden is actually driving his own car in those, in those uh, karaoke bits. I figured he was towed behind a camera car. And, right. that, and no, he is actually, so, he's driving down Beverly Boulevard, which we just drove down, by the way. With all the fancy palm trees, yeah. Yeah, looks, with, with eight uh, GoPros. Yeah, so yeah. he's got eight GoPros strapped to his Range Rover with some of the most famous people in the world. Yeah, yeah. They, they did say that when he was driving with Barbara Streisand, actually Barbara Streisand drove, uh, that was being towed. All oh, right, okay, yeah. <laughs> so how do you know about that? Why are you talking about that? Uh, I'm doing that because I was actually talking to CBS today about the James Corden show and possible uh, colorist work. Great. So we'll see. We'll see if that actually comes to pass. Yeah, yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. Uh, we've uh, we've relocated from Chroma, and it's uh, it's an interesting little area where we are. Just tell everyone where we are. What street? This is a this is a great retro 
bar, restaurant we're in. This is the Fairfax district. We're in a, a wonderful delicatessen restaurant called Canners, which goes back, I think, to the early 1930s. And uh, it's one of these great 24-hour restaurants that has a lot of atmosphere. Uh, it used to be a, a home for a lot of rock and roll bands. You'd see some interesting people because there are a lot of studios in the area. And you'd see, you know, we were talking about Guns N' Roses, yeah. Fleetwood Mac would be in here. Uh, I, I saw Tim Burton with most of the cast of Beetlejuice in here one night, you know, two o'clock in the morning having pancakes, you know, that, that kind of thing. So it's an interesting place and it's it's sort of frozen in time. You feel like you're in 1950. Yeah. Oh, it's totally. it's that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you were trying to grab a photo for you guys listening. It's, you know, I'm feeling young in this place. It's good. Now, we, we talk about, you know, the work that you're doing, the work you've done. Is being in Hollywood, like right in the center of Hollywood, is that an inspiring thing or you reckon you could be way out doing the same thing, it wouldn't make any difference to you? Um, I think there's more opportunity in yeah. Hollywood. You certainly have a better chance of working on something recognizable. Uh, but at the same time, the competition is so fierce that it makes it a bit of a struggle because there's always another guy nipping at your heels who might be able to do it faster, cheaper, maybe better. I don't know. He'll certainly be able to do it differently. So how, how do you go about promoting Cromer and just letting people know that you're around and available and how does that work or are you just going off word of mouth? Uh, I would say a lot of it is word of mouth. We also get uh, repeat businesses, business from people who uh, shoot more than one film. But we have relationships with four or five uh, theatrical DI rooms around time. So we work out a deal to book some time and we'll just four wall the room and transport the session over there if we need to do a theatrical release or a film festival or whatever. So one, one nice thing in being in a city this size is I can pick up the phone and book a room in a couple of hours. And there's always some place that's available. It's just a question of timing and budget and all of that stuff. So the other question is, and you were asking me about training and how that's working and how that's working out. How do you see the training business for colorists at the moment what, from the outside? That's, a, that's an interesting question. And for me, so 40 years for me just as a colorist, but I'm looking to uh, maybe have a, I don't know, possibly a retirement scheme. So I thought maybe, maybe I should think about getting into the training business, going to work at a local college, or uh, maybe partner up with another school that's already doing it. There's a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, who's famous for saying it, it takes 10,000 hours to be good at something. And my joke was back in the 80s, I spent 10,000 hours figuring out color correction and how, it, how to make a good picture. But then it took another 10,000 hours to figure out how to make the client happy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then I think it took me another 10,000 hours after that 
to figure out the business aspects. How can I make a living at this? How do I get, get a raise? How do rates work? How can I make sure the facility makes money while I make money? And we're also keeping the client happy and they're convinced they're getting their money's worth. Well, that was the 80s. That was 30,000 hours in the 80s. And now here we are 20, 25 years past that. I've, I have about, I have the equivalent of 12 or 13 different color correction systems floating around in my head. Sometimes when I use Resolve, I'll go, oh God, I remember doing this in Baselight, or I remember doing it on the Pogle, or Amigo, or Arcus, or uh, Dubner. I mean, there's, so there's all, there's all these weird systems floating around in my head, and I go, wow, I'd love to be able to go, go into my brain with a spoon and just cut out the things I don't need anymore. Let's just, let's just think about the things we need today. You know, but, it, but one good thing that's good for me and the clients I work with, and one thing that we try to do at Chroma, because Henry and I have so much experience with film, real film, as, as you know, in telecine and on scanners and in motion picture cameras and so on, our our little tagline is: we try to bring a film aesthetic to digital filmmaking. So I'm not saying we're going to automatically give crappy digital work a film look. Yeah. But at least we know what that film look is supposed to be, yeah. even though it's kind of a nebulous. That term. helps totally. Helps. So what have we got here? What's this? Let's see. We are we are having uh, chicken rice soup. Yes. And and these bagel chips. Bagel chips. Bagel okay. chips, Probably. which they make here at Canners, and they are delicious and nutritious. And I believe it's kosher too, which is always important. Mmm. I got to do a couple of projects for David Tattersall, a fine British DP, yes. who worked for George Lucas on the first three uh, yes. prequels. Yes. And uh, he shot the first one on film. And then towards the end of production, George, who was very interested in electronic cinematography, said, hey, I just got a call from Sony. They've got an experimental camera for us to test out. And I want to use it on the film. You think you can make it work? And he said, well, let's do some tests and we'll see. And I think it was only 25 frames. And uh, there were some issues with it, but they said, well, let's try to work around that. So they, they got it to work. So there are two scenes in this otherwise film yeah. movie, which were secretly shot digitally. And they actually shot it on HD cam. Yeah. They, they didn't use any hard drives or anything like that. And, um, and so I'm talking to David Tattersall. I, I did Vertical Limit, you know, a snow mountain climbing movie for him. And I said, uh, and I said, so which, which scene in Star Wars Episode One did you shoot digitally? And he said, oh, he says, which one do you think it was? Or which two do you think it was? And I go, well, one that I thought was looking a little dodgy in the blacks was the midi-chlorian scene where, um, I can't remember the star of the movie, but you know the Obi-Wan character is talking to the little boy, yeah. and he's explaining to him where his magic powers come from. And David Tattersall uh, broke out in a laugh, and he said, yeah, he said, I should have known a, a colorist would be able to tell. He said, that was one of the scenes. He said, that was the longest scene. But he said, there was a shorter scene that everybody misses. But he says, it's like, 
20 seconds and you and he's i'm not going to tell you where it is you'll have to find it I went, wow. but th this was like three minutes that's in the movie and i said you know it was good enough it was okay and then of course the second movie they shot completely on i think f950 yes that's it and then the third movie they did on f35 except i mean there was a handful of slow-mo scenes they shot on high-speed film lucas was very interesting and we got into some conversations about film versus digital and um, I won't say he's stubborn, he's certainly not a difficult man, he's one of the best kinds of filmmakers to work with because he knows exactly what he wants, yeah. you know, boom, we're going to do it this way, ABC, it's done. We had a little downtime waiting for some files to get to the room and I happened to stop on a frame of Star Wars that was badly damaged. And you could see the color was was fading and the screen was flickering very badly. And I said, wow, this one's really bad. It's gonna it's gonna need a lot of lot of work. And I said, it's the sh it's a shame that the film has fallen apart. And this is the only time I saw George Lucas get angry. And he said, you know, God damn those people at Kodak. They lied to me, they betrayed me, they told me this was the best negative they would ever make, and this film would last a hundred years, and you know, less than 10 years after Star Wars, I could see the negative was already fading, and those liars, I hope they go out of business, I hate them, I want everything to be on digital, because then I know it will last forever. And I went, oh. I just, I just compressed about a 15 minute you know, diatribe, but I just, I just sat back and let him, you know, go off. And I saw his point. Although at the time, what I what I actually preferred, and I I didn't say anything about it because I want to use a little bit of tact with a, a filmmaker of his stature. My my joke is I never try to argue with a director who has more more Oscars than I do. So, um, but what I like was what Peter Jackson did. Shoots on film, it immediately goes to digital, and from then on the film is never touched. So now for all practical purposes, it is a digital movie, and you have all the tools available in digital, but all the good characteristics of film. Yeah. But I didn't say it. <laughs> and that was why you were doing the remaster for, for Star Wars, for TV. Yes. That was HD time. That was by the then. first first time it had ever gone to oh, HD. Blue, like HD Blu-ray. Yeah. And I believe it's already been redone for 4K. I don't know if it's been redone for 4K HDR. I'd be surprised if it isn't. I think a lot of things were put on hold once it became clear that Disney was going to buy 20th yeah. Century Fox. Yeah. And when that started going about two years ago or a year and a half ago, I think all the Star Wars work stopped. And I think they said, let's put this on hold. Let's wait and see what happens. And if we wind up owning this, we won't have to pay Fox any money. We'll just own it. How long did you get to do the remastering on something as a movie as big as Star Wars? Uh, we never did more than about five minutes a day. We went over every scene at least 14 or 15 times. Um, George would sometimes look at something that we had done. We, I only worked with him twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, yeah. usually between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. 
and this was in C building at the San Rafael uh, facility that they used to have, which was called Kerner Optical. That was their clandestine, you know, uh, black ops kind of top secret name for it. And, um, and so what would sometimes happen is he would be taking a look at a scene and he'd say, you know, I think we got, we had this better last Tuesday. Why don't you pull up last Tuesday's session and let's take a look at this. And I go, ooh. And of course we had all the files say, this was on Pogo, uh, Pandora, yeah. Pogo Platinum. Yeah. And we went back and I'd pull up that file, we'd look at them side by side, back and forth. And he'd say, yeah, he said, why don't you use this sequence from last Tuesday, drop them into the new session, but everything else stays the same. And I thought, Jesus, he's got a better memory for this stuff than I do. Because, I mean, you go over a scene 12, 13, 14 times, you begin to lose track of where you're at. Now, there is a danger, of course, in what I call overcorrecting a film. Yeah. Uh, and I, and Lucas was not one of these people, but there are filmmakers who can't let go. And they will endlessly tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak to the ends of the earth. They will, if you didn't stop them, they would go five, six, seven months they're normally in color the, Normally the younger, more hopeful ones, though, aren't they, really? The more experienced you get, you seem to be more confident in what you shot or the people that you're working with. Well, one, one real problem we have is, uh, I mean, you have a great movie like The Revenant, done by Steve Scott and Gray Marshall and the other team who were at Technicolor. And that's a movie that was essentially relit in post, where, uh, I mean, the DP got to take all the bows and got the Oscar for Best Cinematography. But the reality is they substantially relit a lot of it in post-production. They were placing shadows, they were adding highlights, they were adding fill, pulling things down, they were going into faces and putting a little texture over here and yeah. a bit of a shadow over here and, and tracking it as they walked across the room or across the forest. And, uh, and initially I was kind of angry for the colorists because I thought, Jesus, these, these guys did all the work, but this guy got, got the award. And luckily, after uh, the DP uh, Chivo, Chivo yeah. Lubezki, won the Oscar, and deservedly so. I mean, he did deserve it, and, and, and in fairness to him, he supervised them every single day and said, no, 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 I want this light on the left. Yeah. So he was doing, you know, he was supervising the relighting, although it was done by these technicians. Um, what, I, what I felt was, we're getting a whole new generation of people who think this is the way it's done. And they come in with a, I don't know, a $10,000 feature, even a $50,000 feature, and they go, okay, I want to start relighting this. And we're like, uh, listen, we're, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, a movie like The Revenant, that was three months, six colorists working around the clock, seven days a week, you know, in three or four rooms at the same time. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of man hours. We don't got that. We got, we got a week and a half. So no, you can't, you can't relight this. And I, I wish we could. Yeah. But I mean, the truth, the truth of the matter is, a guy like, a guy like Chivo is going to do such a brilliant job. What you have to work with is going to yeah. have all the range you need. 
they're doing stuff that's just got horrible lighting. It's a, in a room like where we're in now. We've got incandescence, we've got fluorescence, and God knows what else coming at us. There's 19 different color temperatures going on. We're never going to get normal color and normal flesh tones, normal whites out of this. I don't care what you do. And, and they go, wait a minute, can't you just relight this? Isn't there a lot? Isn't there a curve or a key or something you can do? And, and I go, my hands are tied. We can, I can give you about 50% of what you want. A, a good friend of mine that I worked with for 20 years had a great line as a colorist. Whenever somebody would ask him the impossible, he would say, I'm gonna try. But chances are, all we can do is just make it different. And that's, that's really the truth. It may never be good, but in many cases, it'll be better. Yeah. And sometimes that's yeah. all the filmmaker can hope for. Yeah, you never say you can. No. Because then they believe it, wait for it to happen. And uh, just, just a name drop, I was telling Barbara Streisand stories earlier today. A friend of mine who's a sound guy worked with Barbara for a long time, and I, I did a couple of Streisand projects. And I, I asked him one day how things were going. This was back in the 80s. And he said, you know, I learned a valuable lesson. And I said, what's that? And he said, Barbara turned to me and said, you know why I like working with you so much? And he said, no, Barbara, why is that? And she said, you never tell me no. And I, I, thought, about, I thought about that for a long time. And I said, I think that's what we have to do as colorists, not confront the client, be honest, tactful and you know not you know if they ask for something ridiculous you can't say oh that's ridiculous why would you think we could do that this is all screwed up it's it's impossible instead what I'll say is you know that's going to be a challenge but let's take a look at it and let's see what I can do yeah that's not a no but at the same time it's not making promises I can't keep no. but I will never tell them oh yeah we're gonna make this great I mean, I, I try to give them a realistic limit of where we can go, which is better. It's not going to be great, but, you know. And, and the smart ones will accept that and go, ah, okay, yeah, I see, I see what your problem is. Okay, yeah, that's a lot better. Let's move on. Right. You go, know, great, that's a victory. All right, All right. All right Mark. Uh We'll probably wrap this up because we're nearly out of a limit. Thanks for uh, bringing me here. This is uh, this is a real slice of Hollywood, live from Canada. Yes, uh, yeah. I mean, there's some fantastic pictures. I try. I get a picture from the outside, but uh, thanks for coming on the color tour. And uh, where can people find you? We are at chromahollywood.com right, with okay. a with a website still under construction, but it's going to be up soon. We hope by NAB. Fantastic. All right. Thanks very much. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please tune in next month for another edition. If you have enjoyed the pod, then please leave feedback on iTunes or iColorist.com. Who would you like to see featured on the next Color Tour podcast? You can contact me at Color Tour Pod on Twitter.